This, Father, is the Lord's day, and these are your people. Certainly not your only people. You have people all around the world who are seeking to be faithful to you as these people who sit before me are striving to be faithful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom they shine as lights who strive day after day to to let their light so shine before their family, their neighbors, their co-workers that they might see their good works and glorify your God. Oh, Father, now more than ever, may that be true of us. Now more than ever, may we strive to be faithful to you, to worship you in spirit and in truth and in every practical way to lay down our lives, to take up our crosses daily to follow you. And whether the world is friendly to us or not, oh, Father, may we be willing to follow your Son wherever he leads Teach us now, Father, by your word and protect us from error. Fill us with your spirit and a desire to be pleasing to you in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In American history, we have been privileged as the church to have secured for us much freedom, much freedom, and we still perhaps are the freest nation in the world relative to what we are allowed to do as believers. I'm going to take that away by saying the things that I'm going to say this morning. We are a free people, but times are changing. This morning we are in John chapter 15, and by God's grace we'll finish this chapter today. This is normally what we refer to as Vision Sunday. Uh, No worries for those of you who are visiting. Nobody's going to be having a vision this morning. It's already been given to us in God's Word. But vision, not in the supernatural sense, but merely in the sense of uh, typically the way we approach this is what do we believe, what do the elders believe God is calling us to do in the coming year? How, How God has been faithful in the year past and how we're trusting Him for His grace in the following year. This morning is going to be a little different, very little emphasis on vision. We're already doing so many things, so many wonderful things, and this church has changed, I think, in the right direction, in all the right ways, except maybe one that we'll discuss today. From the very inception of the Church of Jesus Christ, she has been the object of tremendous disdain and the target of malicious intent at the hands of evil men. Satan, whom the Bible calls the ruler of this world, hates the church. There is nothing in the world he despises more than faithful followers of Christ. For them, no punishment is too severe. And church history tells us no torture too cruel, no atrocity too grotesque, to employ in an effort to destroy the church as opportunity arises. And this has been Satan's ruling motive ever since the days of the apostles. Hence, the apostle Peter offers 
The church of his day, the appropriate warning in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be on your guard, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In the first century, first century Israel, Christians were persecuted by the re- religious elite, men like Paul, or excuse me, Saul of Tarsus, Pharisees like him, are on record as having chased down those who followed this new religious sect and had them cast out of the synagogue, thrown in jail, and in the case of Stephen, for example, had him stoned to death. The Romans, for their part, also hated these little Christs, as they call them. You, you know that's what Christian means, right? Little Christs. This, this was a pejorative term. This was, this was not a term of endearment. You are little messiahs. You little messiahs. You view yourselves as little Christs, and so we disdain you. They falsely accused our brothers of burning Rome. They rounded them up to die by sport in the Colosseum and other places. They charged him with outlandish accusations. Notably, they were charged with, let me, let me just give you a few by way of sample, okay? They were charged with cannibalism because when they met, they talked about how their, when their meetings proceeded, they talked about eating the Lord's flesh and drinking his blood. They were charged with disrupting commerce because the pagan religious cults, including uh, the Dionysian cults and the Kopakis and and all kinds of other cults, there were so many people who were turning to Christ under the ministry of the apostles and those who followed them that they abandoned the purchase of temple, uh, uh, temple rites, temple statues, and all things related to the temple cults. It was harming business. They were charged with gross immorality. You know why? Because they called one another brother and sister. And the cults were so engaged in immorality that they just assumed that this new sect, the church, was doing the same thing and charged them with incest. They were charged with atheism. You know why? It's because the Roman world and the Greek world was so full of its gods that the Christians rejected all of them. And the Romans and the Greeks had no concept of the God that the Christians worshipped, and so they charged them with atheism. They were charged with lack of patriotism because all of the, the civic festivals of Rome were religious events that exalted the gods, and so Christians wouldn't participate. They were not supporters of their own nation. They were even blamed for natural disaster. Because when flood or famine came, it was assumed the gods were punishing Rome or Greece or whoever it was because of the rampant atheism caused by the Christians who were not worshiping their gods. And you see how it all kind of tumbles into place. And so the persecution continued until the collapse of Rome, which ironically was undermined by the gospel. During the years of the Reformation, 1550 to 1650 roughly, Persecution of the faithful was brought on largely by the Roman Catholic Church, religious people. As always, the most severe persecution has always been from religious people. 
It was during this time that Martin Luther almost single-handedly stood against Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, that is, and declared that it had gotten the gospel wrong and began his protest, which is why we are called Protestants. He protested that they had gotten the gospel wrong. He said that they had departed from the true faith and were guilty instead of many intolerable spiritual abuses. And for this, the Pope and the Emperor hunted him down. They burned his books and they put a price on his head. In the year 1521, young Martin Luther was called to appear before the Holy Roman Emperor at the Diet of Worms. Diet or diet, it's not diet of worms, that's just gross. It's the diet of worms. Diet just means a formal meeting. He was called to appear at this formal meeting before Emperor Charles V. Luther thought he was being invited to engage in debate about the issues that he had written extensively about relative to the church. When he arrived at Worms, however, he walked into the meeting area and found that there was a table set up with all of his books and pamphlets. And so they, they asked Luther, are these your books? To which he responded in the affirmative. And they said, do you recant? So much for the debate. Luther knew what that meant because they had done the exact same thing to John Huss before they burned him at the stake. Do you recant? In other words, will you declare that you do not believe what you have written and that the statements you have made about salvation and the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church are false? Do you recant? To this, Luther famously replied, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Holy Scripture or by evident reason, for I cannot believe neither nor counsel alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis, my conscience, is captive by the word of God. I cannot and will not recant, for to act against one's conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And amen is exactly what he said. Luther's words reflect the spirit of every faithful disciple who endeavors to live for Christ in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And sooner or later, the world will require us to give up our beliefs, to recant the clear teaching of Scripture, to turn our backs on Christ and his exclusive, intolerant gospel, and face the consequences. In various ways, most of them granted minuscule compared to what's happening in the Middle East today. To this we must say, our conscience is held captive by the word of God. Here we stand. We can do no other. Whenever we discuss the topic of persecution, and I'm not sure I ever have from this pulpit, because we've experienced virtually none of it. But whenever we talk about it, casually or in Bible studies, we're, we're talking about something that Jesus himself wanted to prepare us for. And so on the night that he was betrayed by Judas, he spoke briefly to his disciples about the opposition they would soon begin to face. 
Why don't we read about that? Let's stand together. John chapter 15, beginning with verse 18. This is not going to be a happy, slappy, inspiring, encouraging sermon this morning. This is just real if you're a Christian. John 15, beginning with verse 18. Listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else ever did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. And they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. And the Lord had his blessing to the reading of his word. Just a couple of notes here. At the end, these things I say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. Got to understand that as long as the disciples were with Jesus, they were under his protection. You never see any place in the Gospels where the disciples are being persecuted. They always went after Jesus. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they get arrested, which is coming soon <laughs> in the sermon near you, um, even then, the disciples were all spared. But when Jesus is gone... All of that changes. And notice, too, these two statements. If I had not come and spoken to them, verse 22, they would not have sin. And then verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else ever did, they would have no sin. What's that mean? It doesn't mean they would have never been counted as sinners. That's not the case, I think. And this is it's a difficult part of this text. I'm throwing it out up front before we get into the things that I, I think you need to hear. I think what he's talking about is the sin of unbelief. If they had not been, if they had not seen and heard, if they had not heard his word and seen his miracles, their punishment, assuming they would not have repented, would have been less. Jesus says that elsewhere. And maybe there's another way to interpret that. It is difficult. 
But Jesus is saying this, let there be no mistake. They should have known. They heard my words. They saw my acts. There is no excuse. When a person comes into a new relationship with Christ, he also comes into a new relationship with the world. He was a worldling. Now he's a Christling. Now he's a Christian. To those who are saved by grace out of the world, they are saved into the church, into Christ. We become, in Peter's word, 1 Peter 2, 9, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. We belong to God. We are now in his kingdom. And from that moment on, we live to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The problem is, the world, the world will not love us for this because it's impossible to proclaim the excellencies of Christ without exposing the foolishness and wickedness of the world. The Christian worldview and the secular worldview are always at odds with one another, and that often produces conflict. But this shouldn't be surprising to us. In fact, we have been commanded not to be surprised by this. 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brethren, that the world hates you. It's no surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise. It's a surprise for us because the world has been so accommodating to the church for so long. And the world has had that effect on our nation for so long. It only made sense. The gospel had affected this, this culture so much that the culture itself was endearing to the church. In fact, we got our tax-exempt status from men who understood that to restrain evil in the world, we need the church. But now, evil is good, and good is evil, and bitter is sweet, and sweet is bitter. Jesus explains in John 7, 7, the world hates me because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. The world hates me because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. You see, the world's contempt for Christians and the gospel we proclaim is owing to moral, not intellectual motives. Jesus said on another occasion, John 3, 19 and 20, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. For Jesus, this wasn't just a public talking point. This is very, very personal. You think you have personal conflict with family and coworkers because you're a Christian? Jesus said the same thing. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, right? Now consider this, even his own siblings, his own brothers, in John chapter 7, his own brothers were among the world. They held to, to the world's worldview, we might call it. And Jesus confronted them on that one time. In John 7, 7, he says this. Um, and that might be the wrong reference because I just quoted John 7, 7 and that was a different text. But here's what he says. The world cannot hate you because it hates me. 
but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. He's saying this to his brothers. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Over the past decade, and especially in the past few years, as we've watched the rise of Islam, the new rise of Islam, by the way, nothing really new here. This has been the battle since um, really before the Middle Ages. And the, whole, the whole point of what was happening during the Crusades was Islam against Christianity and the horrible atrocities that happened there. No defense for any of that. I'm simply making the point that this is nothing new. This, is, this has been going on for millennia. But over the past decade, especially in the past few years, if we watch on television and see in the news, the Islamic State has targeted Christians for beheading and other forms of murder. And we have found ourselves collectively shocked to see this kind of return to primitive barbarism relative to how the world treats Christians. Granted, not the world of the United States necessarily, although they are getting inroads here but the church in the West, especially in the United States and Great Britain, we have largely been insulated from the conflict with very rare exceptions. Very rare exceptions. And with rare exception, we have lived in a state of freedom relative to any kind of harassment from the state. But times are changing, aren't they? Times are changing. Now that some of the most immoral ideals imaginable have found strong advocacy in the highest offices of our land, the tension between the church and the world is increasing exponentially. But Jesus does not want us to be caught off guard. And in the passage before us, he warns us before it happens. He warns us before it happens. The word hates here at the beginning, if the world hates you, that's a perfect active indicative, meaning has hated and still hates. If the world continues to hate you, it is still hating you and will continue to hate you. If you are striving to be faithful to Christ in this wicked and perverse generation, sooner or later, you will come to the realization that the world hates you, that the world hates you, and the world hates his church. And everything it stands for. Let's take a minute to think about why the church hates Christ and his church. Why does the world hate Christ and its church? The biblical explanation for why the, the world hates you. Look at verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it's hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And so here we go. What's the biblical explanation for why the world hates you? First, the world hates you because you don't belong to them. You don't belong to them. You're not one with them. You're not united with them. To be of the world means that you share the world's worldview. But when God called you out of the world, he gave you a love for Scripture. Listen, it wasn't just a verbal invitation. It wasn't just a hopeful 
call. It was an effectual call. If you are a child of God, it's because God called you with power. He drew you to himself. He put his Holy Spirit in you and began cleaning house, making changes, getting rid of, of, of sinful habits and bringing on a desire for holiness and worship and conformity to Scripture. You love the Word of God because you have been called out of the world. You've been called effectually by God out of the world. And now you love Scripture. And you have an entirely different view. You now have a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting worldview. What's a worldview? A worldview is simply a set of... of um, lenses, as it were, through which you interpret everything around you. Why is it that, that you and the world can look at the exact same thing, the exact same news story, and you interpret it one way, for instance, abortion, and say, this is the murder of babies. And on the other side, they're looking through their lens at the same exact thing, and they're saying, no, this is good for women. This is women's health. I mean, how can it be possible that two people see the exact same thing in diametrically opposed ways? Answer, worldview. You're wearing a different set of lenses. You see the world through Scripture, or at least you should. And because we are Christ, in Christ, we see everything through the lens of Scripture. To use Luther's term, our conscience is held captive by Scripture. And that means we see human sexuality different. And because of that, we see abortion and same-sex union in a manner that's completely opposite of how the world sees it. We see the issue of origins differently, as well as law and justice and love and family and a myriad of other issues. We see them differently. We see the aged differently. We see the infirmed differently. We see the nations differently. More than anything else, we see God differently. And though in this world can't claim to believe him, our scripture-defined view of God upsets, upsets the world probably more than anything else. Because we say what Jesus said, and that is, religious as you are, you don't even know God. And so the world hates you because you don't belong to them. Secondly, the world hates you because it hates Christ. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is, uh, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also per persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. Uh, that last line in there is consistent with everything else Jesus has taught. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. There will be. We're not talking about everybody in the world is going to reject you and hate you. You will have brothers and sisters, and they will multiply almost without measure. But this is why the world hates you. The world hates you because you don't belong to them, and the world hates you because it hates Christ. The idea here is simply this. Since they hated Christ, it, not, it, it, it makes sense that uh, they will hate you and everyone who follows him. And the historical record reveals that they persecuted Christ, so just know. 
they will harass you as well. And that's what persecute means. Persecute means to harass, especially because of one's religious beliefs. To drive away or to drive out or to chase like a wild animal. And we see all all the different shades of harassment taking place around the world. For us in America, granted, probably the lowest kind of harassment is just around the corner. But it's coming. This was certainly the experience of the apostles in general, and for the Apostle Paul in particular, when in 2 Corinthians 4 and 9 he testified, we are persecuted but not forsaken. We are struck down but not destroyed. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. We carry about the death of Jesus. What does that mean? We consider ourselves like sheep to be slaughtered every day. And by the way, that's... that. That section in Romans 8 where he talks about we consider ourselves sleep to be sh- sheep to be slaughtered every day. I mean, that's kind of the life verse of the persecuted church in our day. I mean, we don't experience that, but they do. They do. And persecution was just a normal part of the life experience for the apostles. They didn't expect that, that the world would love them. They made no attempt to mollify them by softening the message or trying to be inclusive and pluralistic and broad-minded as possible. They weren't trying to find favor with the world. They were seeking to win them with Christ, to Christ by any means, any biblical means. And so, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, we demolish strongholds and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We tear down fortresses. You know what they are? They are philosophies. They are doctrines of demons. This isn't talking about physical weapons. This is talking about spiritual weapons. It's talking about preaching. It's talking about teaching. It's talking about confronting the false teachings of the world. And Paul knew where that would land him. They didn't think the world would be nice to them. The world wasn't nice to them. But periodically, by and by, a little here, a little there, God draws people to himself. And they multiply. The fruit multiplies. And so the message of verse 20 is, if they persecuted your master, they will persecute you. And frankly, you need to be okay with that. Don't try to avoid that. Don't feel like you're, you're getting uh, a raw deal, like you deserve better. Jesus didn't think that way. The apostles didn't think that way. You need to be okay with that. Number three, the world hates you because it hates God the Father. It hates you because you're not a part of them. You're not one with them. They hate you because they hate Christ, and they hate you because they hate the Father. And look at the next passage here, uh, verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else ever did, they will not have sinned. They would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me 
and my father as well. Clearly, this doesn't mean that the world's not religious. To the contrary, the world has become increasingly religious. Everyone has some form of spirituality and some idea of what God is like. I've even heard atheists, who, if you really pay attention to what they're saying, it's not that they don't believe in God, it's just they're not going to devote themselves to a God that doesn't agree with them. It makes no sense to me, therefore you don't exist. I don't like the way you're ruling the world, therefore you don't exist. But God doesn't believe in atheists. God doesn't believe in atheists. He tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the reality of God's existence is evident through what he has made. Therefore, they are without excuse. The creation cries out, God exists. It doesn't tell us how we can know him. It just reveals God. And Jesus takes that to the next level. He appears as God, and he speaks to them. He tells them how they can know God, and he does things to prove that he is God. Therefore, they are without excuse. Paul was just reiterating Jesus from a different angle. But this is the point, isn't it? Though the world is full of spirituality and claims to know God, Jesus said they know nothing of God at all. The God of their own understanding is a God of their own making. There is no excuse for wrong thinking about God. Jesus proved that. And so you see, it's, it is your connection to Jesus and the Father that makes you a target for harassment, for disdain, and if we might use the word persecution. And in a practical terms, your relationship to Jesus and the Father are manifested in two ways, just as they were manifest by Jesus. What got him into trouble? It was the things that he said and the things that he did. That's what got him in trouble. And that's the same thing with you. By the way, I think that the reason, the primary, dominant, far above any other reason that so many of us at Calvary Bible Church don't share the gospel with unbelievers is because we're afraid of what might happen. Listen, we come it both ways. You can't argue we are not being persecuted and on the other hand, not share the gospel because we're afraid that we're going to be persecuted. Somebody might not like us. It's going to feel like persecution. Somebody might reject us. It's going to feel like persecution, and technically it is. It's what we say and what we do. And so what do we do that provokes hatred from the world? Well, we try to live a holy and upright life in order to show the world what Christ is like. But if we're going to pursue holiness and Christ-likeness, there are many things that we just won't do. There are many things that we won't condone doing, and there are a number of things that we will flat out stand against. The world won't love you for that. It won't love you for that. I know what it was like as a teenager, not as an adult, but as a teenager being invited to parties where there was all manner of drugs and alcohol and everything that goes with that. I remember that. I remember that as a professing believer and the agony of saying, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. 
What's wrong with you? I'm just not doing that. And not really having the nerve to dive into the gospel with most of them, but just fearing God rather than men. I had this intuitive sense about me that what they're doing is wrong and I want no part of that. It's hard enough to get a hold of my flesh and to get that thing under control and try to live for Christ. If If I'm doing that, no way. There's no way. The Holy Spirit inside me will not give me rest. And this is what we do. And it's sometimes the things we choose not to do. And it's what we say. What do we say that provokes the world to hate us? Well, we say what Scripture says. We say that the only way to God is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We preach an exclusive rather than an inclusive gospel. It is a gospel that says things like Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we say things like John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You're saying that if, if I practice homosexuality, that the wrath of God is on me? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love you. That's why I'm telling you that. Yes, repent. He will not love you for that. We say things like 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. How many? One. And we say things like 1 John 5.10 and 11, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is that testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. End of story. End of sentence. End of paragraph. That's all there is to say. This is an exclusive gospel. It's an exclusive gospel. These are exclusive, universal truth claims declaring that Christ is the only true way to heaven and all other belief systems are false. How arrogant. How mean-spirited. And that's how we are perceived. When I, was, I told you about uh, the time a couple weeks ago when we put some furniture out on the, out on the, um, out on the curb because uh, we're getting ready to move, uh, not far away, but we're getting ready to move. And uh, these uh, two people showed up, uh, senior citizens, showed up uh, with a trailer. They were neighbors, showed up with a, a trailer and started loading it up. And I ran out there and answered their questions and told them, yeah, it, we're giving it away, take it, to help them up. And they both sat down on the trailer, and I got to present the gospel to them, or, or at least to him. And he was very receptive. He comes out of a Baptist background, and he's kind of wandered away, but um, at least he understood the gospel, and we had a good conversation. But the woman who was with him, neighbor, said, you know, I just think, she had kind of a Rodney King theology, can't we all just get along? Let's emphasize the things that we agree on. And I thought, this conversation is going to be really, really short. 
because I don't, I don't agree on much relative to this conversation. Our gospel is an exclusive gospel. Our gospel is an exclusive gospel, and all other systems are false. Moreover, these truth claims say not only that Jesus is the only way to God, but there are some people in this world who will never see him because their deeds are evil. And so Paul mentions this in first place, in, in two places. In, uh, first in Galatians chapter 5, and just as explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, where he says this. Message is the same, the lists are a little different, but in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, I've warned you, and I have forewarned you, and I do it again because I love you. Repent. This is a message of judgment. We bring a message of judgment and grace. But listen, if the bad news isn't really, really, really bad, then the good news isn't that good. And when we dumb down the judgment side of the gospel, we water down the glorious side of grace. We must preach judgment. We must preach judgment. We do it graciously. We do it carefully. We serve the people that we're trying to reach. But we can't compromise on the message. But when we say things like this to this generation, it's sometimes enough to get you in serious trouble. And when we do things that we do and refuse to participate in, it's enough to get us in serious trouble. Thankfully, to this point, it's, it's been few and far between. But you've probably read the story of the Christian married couple, Aaron and Melissa Klein, owners of the Oregon-based Sweet Cakes Bakery, were just recently ordered by a judge to pay $135,000 for emotional damages to a lesbian couple because they refused to make a cake that celebrated same-sex marriage. $135,000. How would that impact your life? Um, a headline this past week in the Denver Post recently highlighted the fact that Chick-fil-A is in trouble again. They applied for a concession slot at the Denver International Airport, but it's facing serious opposition from the civil council in Denver. The problem, members of the council are claiming that Chick-fil-A's Christian values are immoral. They're claiming bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. Immoral because they believe what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality. And even though the legal representatives of Chick-fil-A have demonstrated that their hiring policies are absolutely in conformity with the law of the land relative to discrimination, nevertheless, the city council is still pressing because they are offended by their Christian values. Now, I expect Chick-fil-A's is going to win this case as they've won the others. But it's revealing, isn't it? They're confronting Christian organizations 
from a moral argument. You are immoral if you hold to Scripture because there is a new morality. Don't you realize that we are on the backside of a moral revolution and it's time to get on board? And those who say no are in trouble. Those who hold to what the Scripture says are in trouble. The Master's College, Master's Seminary, excuse me, a few weeks ago posted online on their own website an uh, article on homosexuality. And um, it has been reported that within a few hours of it being posted, they received a cease and desist order immediately or face a very severe lawsuit. This summer, the Supreme Court, for all intents and purposes, redefined marriage in terms of the law, and when they made a decision on the Obergefell versus Hodges case, the same-sex marriage case that sets the stage for legalized uh, same-sex marriage in all 50 states, which has happened now. During the ar oral arguments, there was an exchange between Chief Justice Roberts and Solicitor, Gen uh, Solicitor General Varelli, who represents the United States who was arguing for same-sex marriage, and Chief Justice asked him, as a result of this new law, would a religious school that has married housing be required to afford such housing to same-sex couples? You get the question? If you're a Christian college and you offer housing to married couples, will this law require those Christian schools to give that, to offer that to same-sex couples? The answer from the Solicitor General of the United States was, it is going to be an issue. Let there be no mistake, beloved. The Solicitor General of the United States has just announced that the rights of a religious school to operate on the basis of its, of its own religious faith will soon be under attack. And honestly, I think that's where they're going to start. And they're going to start with the schools and the secondary religious institutions. And they'll hold off putting the squeeze on the church for a while. Moreover, there's a strong push in the U.S. government to revoke tax-exempt status from religious institutions, including the church. For many churches that have, may have significant property in buildings, this could be a crushing burden that would force them to cut ministry, to let go of staff, and perhaps even close its doors. Uh, we were thinking about this this morning among the elders. Charlie, our resident elder and CPA, asked him, and one of the brothers asked an, another uh, brother in the church who does uh, property taxes, legal property taxes, um, what that would mean for us if we lost the privilege of tax-exempt status. Ballpark figure, forty, fifty thousand $50,000 a year for us. And we're, we're a relatively small church, right? You know, you know what that means, $50,000? That means one of the pastors is gone. Lots of ministry is gone. We're not there yet. I understand that. But beloved, Jesus says that it's coming. I'm not saying Jesus says your tax-exempt status is going to be revoked. But I'm saying... If you desire to live godly, if you pursue godliness in your personal life, 
you will face opposition. And probably now more than ever. Christian colleges will be devastated by the government refusing to offer student loans and Pell Grants if they don't affirm same-sex marriage and homosexual agenda. There are some schools like Southern Seminary and Boyce College who have always refused those loans. And they're cheaper, to be sure, but you have to pay cash, pretty much. And they did that because they saw that this was going to be a push later on. Wisdom there. And so first we saw the biblical explanation for why the world hates Christians. Now the question before us, how do we respond? How do we respond to this? Oh, and by the way, I, I, we already read chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. It talks about what the apostles were going to face, that they would be cast out of the synagogues, and people, everyone who did harm to them, would think that they were rendering service to God. For them, it was going to be severe. For our brothers and sisters around the world, it already is severe. For us, it hasn't been severe at all. We have been largely protected. We've been largely exempt. But how do we respond to the world's hatred? Look at verses 26 and 27. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, so we know we're talking about the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. How should we respond to growing hostility in the world? We should testify all the more boldly about Jesus. And I only heard one amen. <laughs> Listen, that's telling. The fact that I only heard one amen, and I know some of your others were, were amening in your hearts, and that's great. But can I just be pastoral with you just a minute? I am your pastor. So look up here for a minute. Can we just talk face to face? I feel like I'm talking to my kids. Sometimes we just need to have this conversation. I do too. The Lord has done some amazing thing, changes at Calvary Bible Church. Every year I pray, God, show me. I mean, I'm not looking for some crazy program, some crazy vision. Somebody come up with something creative and let's do it. It's just God. What do we know from your word that you want us to do that we're not doing well, we're doing poorly, or we're not doing at all? And that needs to change. So all kinds of changes that have come out of that. Our missions uh, ministry has been transformed. Our benevolence ministry is, uh, has been transformed and is being transformed thanks to the ministry of Keith. <laughs> and uh, discipleship, discipleship, it's, it's not where it ought to be, but oh my goodness, it is far, far down the road from where it was just three years ago. And all the elders now are discipling. I've said that before. That's just worth noting. Again, we're serious about discipleship. And the biblical counseling, that's just part of that discipleship ministry, not only to the church, but to the world. All of that has come in. It's come into place. We praise God for that. But you know what the, the pink elephant in the room has always been? Evangelism. Evangelism. You know what the word evangelism does? Watch this. Evangelism. It makes it really quiet. <laughs> we all get quiet. We all start looking at the ground, looking at our watches, kicking the dirt. We don't know whether to spit or wind our watch. We evangelism. 
Beloved, that shouldn't be with us. Yes, we believe that God is sovereign, but we believe God is sovereign not only over the ends, but the means as well. And he's revealed to us the means. Go, therefore. You go and make disciples. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Invite them to come. We've got to get good at this. You've heard me over the past weeks sharing stories of my meager attempts to engage the lost in this community, just as I have opportunity. Not some new program, not some new clever strategy, just when I find myself talking to someone and I know it's probably going to last a few minutes, let's just dive in and find out where you stand with Christ. And you know what that is for me? I'll just be real honest. That's repentance for me. And it needs to be for you as well. It's time. It's time. Gone are the days when we thought that everybody in Texas was a Christian. (laughs) It's now clear that, that that's changing. Not that everybody was. They weren't. And so many are religiously deceived. But we're talking about our response to these things, the hatred of the world towards Christ and his people. We need to endeavor all the more to be faithful with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to resolve all the more to announce to people that all of their sin can be forgiven and all their shame washed away in the blood and righteousness of the one who gave his life so that they could live. And we should tell them, we should tell them this. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We should be asking people. Tell them, God is, when they ask you, what do you do for a living? You say, well, I'll tell you about that in a minute. Let me tell you what I love to do. I get the privilege of telling everybody that I meet that all your sins can be forgiven. You interested in that? And we should do all of this in the full knowledge that we may be hated, harassed, and ostracized for doing so. But that's okay. For so they treated the prophets before us. And so they treated Christ. You know, the elders have been doing a study on the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's been wonderful just for us, us six guys to sit down, seven, including Keith, six guys to sit down, Week after week, we read, we discuss, we pull things up on the internet, we buy books. You know, we're just, we're trying to learn so that we can lead and so that we can grow and change. And it's beautiful. One of the articles I read recently on this topic was talking about the Holy Spirit's ministry and when he comes in the Word of God, it's always the Spirit and the Word, the Spirit and the Word, the Spirit and the Word, the Spirit and the Word. Where the Spirit is, the Word is going forth. And I was really, really convicted by that. Because there are many times when I know the Spirit is within me, He indwells me permanently, and wherever there's the Spirit, there should be Word, and when the Word should be coming forth, sometimes it doesn't. But my responsibility, and yours, whether you're gifted to teach or or anything, if you have the Spirit, that Spirit the Holy Spirit should be speaking through your mouth, saying the things that people need to hear 
That's, that's what God uses to draw people to himself. Speak, don't just live. The gospel is not go ye into all the world and be nice. It's go into all the world and speak. Speak. Speak love. Speak truth. Speak grace. Speak the gospel. By the way, the word testify here, verse 27, you shall testify, is the word marturetto, martureo, maybe, from which we get the English word martyr. Now, don't misunderstand me. That word does not mean martyr. It means to testify. But in Jesus' day and, and afterwards in the early days of the apostles, and certainly, even to this day around the world, there are places where this is true, that if you are going to be faithful in testifying, in speaking about Christ, you may be numbered among martyrs. We're called to testify. We're called to testify. So let me be clear on this, beloved. Once again, this is maybe the third or fourth time I've said this already this morning. We are nowhere near that extreme in our relationship with the world in which we live. It's very, very rare that a Christian is killed for his faith. But you know what? We're nowhere near ready to face that. We are such a touchy-feely, easily having our, 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 our emotions if offended by people who look at us crosswise while they're walking down the hall. And far be it from us that we should ever chance offending anyone by telling them they don't know God. And they can. And we should encourage ourselves often with the reality that the Holy Spirit has not quit his mission. The Holy Spirit hasn't quit his mission to savingly draw sinners to Christ. He's still doing that. He's still doing that. And every missionary should understand that that's the reason they should go, knowing that the Holy Spirit is calling people to Christ, just using them as the means for announcing that call. And we should be greatly encouraged that Jesus has not reneged his promise to, I will build my church and the gates of death will not overpower at the gates of Hades. I will build my church. He hasn't reneged on that promise. Nothing has changed there. He is still building his church, which means people are still coming. You know, one of the widest fields of harvest right now, we know China, communist China, but did you know Iran? Young people are coming to Christ in droves, or so it has been reported. The Holy Spirit is causing people to be born again. He's like the wind, Jesus said. He blows wherever he wishes and gives life to whom he will. Changes are coming, and they're already happening, already taking place. The church of Jesus Christ seems to be on a collision course with the world around us. And while we must resolve to live in obedience to the laws of the land in every way that we can, nevertheless, at the end of the day, we must obey God rather than men. 
To quote Dr. MacArthur, we will not bow. Or to use the words of Martin Luther, here we stand, we can do no other. They will come and they will tell us to soften our message. They may threaten to take our privileged status as a church away if we don't accommodate the new morality and capitulate to the moral revolution, but we cannot, we will not. And I am keenly aware that many, even in in the evangelical world, are finding new and creative ways to make such accommodation. There's a new theology out now, and it's called um, 2KT, which is two-kingdom theology, where some pretty clever Reformed guys, who are very conservative otherwise, are making accommodation by new way of thinking about their kingdom and ours. Even in the evangelical world, this is happening. We shouldn't be surprised by the liberals. My neighbor, my 85-year-old neighbor, is in better health than I've ever been and stronger and takes no medicine and amazing guy. 85 years old, he can still take apart his motorcycle and drive it around town. (laughs) And he's an elder in um, a local Presbyterian USA church gave me his pastor's position paper on homosexuality. Genesis 18 doesn't mean what it looks like it means. Romans 1 doesn't mean what it looks like it means. 1 Corinthians 6 doesn't mean what it looks like it means. The whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that wasn't about homosexuality. That was about hospitality. And so words don't mean what words mean. And you can always appeal to the original language and find a word that's a distant relative to the one being used and make it say something different. And I got done reading that and thought all the way back to the book of Genesis, the very first temptation. You know what it was? Has God really said? It's an attack on God's word. It's an attack on God's word. I'm keenly aware that there will be many who try to bring together the new morality with spirituality. And they will say to us, unless we join them, we will be relegated to the garbage heap of church history and dissolve into oblivion. And so let me just, let me just say for the record, I don't believe that for a minute. We're not going anywhere. I've never been one to make predictions about the future, but let me tell you what I think is going to happen to Calvary Bible Church. We are not going to unfold. We are not going to dissolve. We are going to grow. And we're not going to grow because of any kind of clever program. We're not going to to grow because we're changing some core philosophy of ministry. We are going to grow because the most relevant thing in the world is the written word of God and its exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. And biblical truth is the only truth that is fixed. It's the only truth that remains constant, no matter how hard or in which direction the cultural winds may blow. And the more our culture slips into the abyss of meaninglessness and pluralism and immorality, the more people will cast about for some rock-solid truth to which they might anchor their lives. And here we will be. And this dear neighbor who we just... If there was one reason why we don't want to move, it's because we don't want to leave him and his wife. Love that couple. Love them. 
but I find it to be the supreme irony that he's calling me to follow them in our inclusivism and in our plurality when in the same conversation he tells me that his church is getting ready to merge with two other churches, Knox Presbyterian Church USA and Ridgely Presbyterian Church USA, which I have under good authority that they are selling and will soon leave. Camp Bowie. They will merge into one church, three churches into one. That seems backwards to me. If I owned, if I owned a Chick-fil-A restaurant, let's say I owned three Chick-fil-A restaurants, and I came to my and I came to my constituents and says, Good news, we're combining into one. I'd say, you don't know how to do business. That's upside down. That's not happy. You should be multiplying your churches, not consolidating in them into one, but they must. Why? You know, some of the leading papers of our land were talking about the cathedral in Washington, D.C., and the parable of that it is. It's all broken down. They haven't had repairs on it in, in years and years and years. And two, I think two stories, two, maybe two different newspapers talking about the parable that is for the mainline church, and in their minds, the church in general. And I say, oh, no. No, no, no. For the mainline, yes. But for those who carry about the gospel of Jesus Christ and are not fearful about offering it. The fruit will multiply. It will multiply. It will multiply. Listen, I'm not afraid about what's coming. I'm not afraid of what's coming. I can't wait to see what God will do next in this little Bible church in Fort Worth and the other churches that will stand firm. It's time we get serious about the gospel, people. It's time we got serious about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's time we got serious about the Holy Spirit speaking through us, not new revelation, but very, very old revelation that needs to be readdressed, repeated, repeated, and repeated for the salvation of those we love. It's time for us to learn how to wield, how to wield the sword of the Spirit in such a way that's designed to bring lost sinners to Christ. As Churchill once reminded his people, in every gathering storm, there is a call to action, a summons to action, and let it be with us as well. Some of you need to learn how to use the gospel, and one of my, one of the elders' plans over the, the next several months is to put in place a class that you can come to during Sunday school to learn the nuts and bolts about sharing your faith. There are a variety of ways to do it. We're going to show you one. And you can build on that from there. And we'll let you know about that. Until then, why not just try meeting or, or, or setting for yourself a goal like once a week, find someone to engage with the gospel. Once a week. If everybody in this room did that, I mean, every adult in this room did that, can you, how many times would the gospel be presented in this community? Maybe you can start by loving your neighbor and inviting them over to your house for a meal and maybe over to here to church. For years, many of us have been like an Arctic river, frozen at the mouth. <laughs> it's time to thaw. It's time to speak. And so we want to encourage some of you to consider spending the rest of your life on the mission field somewhere else in the world. And to encourage that, we are going to be sending a team to Uganda, Africa this next summer. And by the way, applications are in the library this morning. I saw them there. And if you're interested in going, 
There are a lot of requirements you have to meet, a lot of hurdles to jump, but we would love for you to be a part of that. Some of you need to get serious about learning how to disciple others. And you know what? Some of you are deeply involved in sin. And now is your call to repent. Get serious about your sin. Get serious about your sanctification. Get serious about Christ. Well, in all of, all of this, we need to be careful to render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar's. But we will render to God the things that are God's. And no matter what happens, we know that the sufferings of this present life cannot compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us when the Lord returns in glory to take his bride away. Until that day, we remind ourselves of the bedrock hope that we have in the word of, of, of Christ. Martin Luther expressed it in this way, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Beloved, the world may hate you, but the Holy Spirit will bear much fruit through your life as you testify about the Lord Jesus Christ. Our conscience is given by the word of God. Here we stand. We can do no other. May God help us be faithful no matter what. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace now. Things aren't as bad in our country as they could be, and it seems like they're not as bad now as they will be. But it doesn't matter how the culture changes. Your word never changes, because you never change. And your gospel will be relevant down to the very last day. Help us to be faithful with it. Help us to learn to be faithful with it. Help us to resolve to be faithful with it today and throughout this week as we go. Use us, Father, to love people and to offer them the grace of salvation and to meet their needs and to serve them as you have served us in hopes that they will see our love for them and one day glorify our God with us. Lord, these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.